We do dive into our study in the book of John this morning. I mentioned, I, I did, I, Rob mentioned last week, um, why John, uh, why now? Um, I'm gonna unpack that and I'm gonna get us to those first five verses uh, in just a moment. But I do wanna say, you know, we're in John in large part because of the revision uh, the revising of our, of our mission statement. Paige uh, mentioned the beginning of it, but I wanna restate it for you. Uh, Eric and Rob unpacked this last week. Why do we exist? I mean, why are we here? What, what, what are we about? What do we run everything we do through? It's a, it's a mission statement. Becoming a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and, excuse me, and help others do the same. Uh, we we really felt like, you know, as this has been going on for, for months over the last year, revising that mission, sharpening it, that, that one of the best things we could do is spend the, the next year having unpacked, you know, having stated it to unpack it and unpack it in the context of a gospel. A better place to go to than a gospel to say, well, what, is, what does that mean, follow Jesus? Because if I took this, mission statement and boiled it down, you all, to its essence, we could talk about two words, could we not? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. There's nothing more important. There's no greater priority um, to follow, than, to, than to follow him. And, and those two words, you know, you don't have to, you know, a child could grasp them. Follow Jesus. Look what Jesus does, see what Jesus is doing, and then do it, follow him. Hear what Jesus says, and then do what he says, and do it the way he would do it. <laughs> Go below the waterline, the attitude, the emotion in all of that. There's no better way to, than, to, than to immerse ourselves in a gospel account of the life of Jesus. And that'll help us, y'all, put flesh and bones around this statement itself. And why John? Well, that's what I wanna talk about for just a few moments. I'm gonna introduce the book, then we're gonna get to our first passages in a moment. But why, why John at this time? And a number of reasons. I wanna tell you, first of all, the place to first answer that question is not in our text we'll study, but actually to go to the back end of John. So take your Bibles, go to John chapter 20. John 20, I'm gonna read verses 30 and 31 of John 20. This is John's purpose statement. <laughs> Y'all, not all books of the Bible have as clear and explicit a purpose statement as John does. I'm grateful for it because we don't have to search through and try and put a puzzle piece together and get clues and go, this seems to be what the author wants us to do with what he's written, not John. Follow along in your Bibles. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me give you two statements that we can pull out of this purpose statement. I'm gonna phrase it this way. John writes with brazen intentionality. Brazen intentionality. He, he doesn't leave us to guess. 
Uh, he, he's not shy about it. He, he's not writing, you know, to fill in the gaps that some of the other gospel writers left out. He's not writing to inform us or educate us. No, he writes to confront us, he says, with the person of Jesus. And then to call us to respond to who he says Jesus is in this gospel account. He's writing so that those who read, he says it here, will believe and have life. Now, this is so critical and and we'll repeat it as we move through John because that word believe is so important in John. 93 times he mentions it. If you read any commentaries, you'll, you'll often find that they will say the gospel of John's the gospel of belief and it is the gospel of belief. But we've got to note this biblically. Belief is inseparable from behavior. There's no biblical concept of belief that is not connected to behavior. There's no sense to which biblical belief is a mental assent to something. No, it is a mental assent that's connected to a physical action, to a way you live. Belief and behavior are inseparable. So we can say if someone says, oh, I believe in Jesus, well, that would mean if you believe, then you're following. So so we could say the gospel of John, in a sense, quite frankly, is a gospel of following Jesus with our whole heart. Brazen intentionality. And then there's a second thing we can note, and that is he writes with ruthless selectivity. And I call it ruthless because those of you who communicate, who write, who do anything like that, you know it is so much easier just to blab and talk than to actually put a message in a limited space. That's what's hard, not writing this or teaching this, but teaching this and getting it down. And he is ruthlessly selective. I want you to see this. Flip over one page to the last verse in John where he writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Y'all, he's speaking in hyperbole, of course, but he's making a hyperbole is to make a point, And that is, there's a lot more I could say about what Jesus himself said and the things he did, but I'm not gonna say them. And I'm only gonna choose those things, those events, those things that Jesus said and did that will run through the purpose grid of, will this engender belief that behaves in someone who puts their trust in Jesus? I want you to think about this. It's it's like, you know, it's distilled down so much, it's all distilled down to 879 verses of all that Jesus did and said. And so the selectivity, why am I camping on this? I just want us to feel the weight of every word in John, of every event, because he leaves a lot out that are in the other gospels. Why did he put it in this one? And we've got to feel the weight of that as we move through this book. Which brings us to his first words. 
Turn your Bibles to John chapter one. We are in verses one through five. John one, verses one through five. Now, I was talking about this last service and someone came up to me and said, you know, there's a name for that. And what I'm speaking of is this. You know, sociologists, psychologists, um, communication specialists will tell you that uh, what, what we remember is what is done first and last. Doesn't mean all this is unimportant, but if, if, you, if, you're gonna, if someone's gonna remember something, then it's what's first and last. And, and, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, Lloyd, you do know, you know I study psychology, et cetera. And he said, what, what that's known as is the primacy recency effect. It's a fact. In every commercial, every movie, every song, whatever, it's every concert. You go to a concert and you go, that was amazing, three-hour concert. You don't remember the whole thing, but you remember how it started and then they're gonna make sure you remember how it ends. It's the primacy, recency effect. And this is true so much in literature. And you know, this is a piece of literature we're reading. And I'm saying that to say to you, I, I cannot communicate to you the gravity of these first words, the weight they carry. One scholar, G.K. Barrett, said this, the whole of John must be read in light of the first sentence. Like the first sentence must shape our entire reading of John. And if the Spirit opens our eyes, you know, this will be true through the whole book, of course, but this first, this first part, if the spirit opens our eyes and we grasp what he is presenting to us about Jesus, I assure you. And following Jesus moves from something, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it moves from something you have to do to something you get to do. It gets even better. It becomes, for the one who gets this, it becomes that which surpasses everything else in life. Like this becomes life, what he talks about here. Following Jesus becomes not a hard hill to climb, but you know, Jesus will use these, these, these metaphors, but it, it's a feast. You ever been hungry and run? If you're hungry, you run to the feast. It's a spring of living water. You ever been thirsty? You run to quench your thirst. On Jesus. Now, in order to see these verses, I think in a proper frame of, of mind, if you will, I'm gonna get here not by word, but by some images, by some pictures I want you to ponder with me. 1995, uh, the Hubble telescope has been in operation for, for a number of years by then. The most powerful telescope that humanity had at the time, <clears throat> obviously scanned the night sky. Um, and the big question, of course, astronomers, most astronomers, you know, the, the ultimate question they pursue is, you know, where did it all begin? Where did it all come from? You peer into the sky to see where, what's the farthest stars and galaxies that we can see. Got a picture of the night sky here. This is just your night sky and mine. This is what right sits above us even as we sit here today. You can see the Big Dipper there, 1995, an astronomer with NASA wanted to use their time with the Hubble telescope to stare into space. And now you go, well, that's what they always do. Well, no, they, they look at all of space, 
but he decided he was gonna put, a, put the telescope itself on one dark spot in the sky. And they chose a dark spot, which you look up there and you go, well, there's nothing there. Yeah, they put it on one dark spot in the sky and they put it there for 100 hours. Now you go, okay, no big deal. Well, this is where, you know, you read this stuff where they, you know, it costs every second that this telescope's in use is thousands and thousands of dollars. It's booked up, so to speak, because it's an international consortium around it. And so they said, no, we can't waste a hundred hours to look at nothing. And he persisted. And he said, no, we're gonna do that. And so they focused it on a dark spot near the handle of the Big Dipper. And you've gotta get this, this is so important, that they said is a spot the size of a grain of sand on your finger held at arm's length. So, so picture a grain of sand on your finger at arm's length, a spot in the sky, and at that spot, they stared at it for 100 hours because they couldn't see anything there. 100 hours later, what it produced was, a, was an image that revolutionized astronomy and our grasp of the origins of the universe. It was called the Hubble Deep Field. So here's what they saw. Here was the first image. So in that space, there, there was nothing. It's the size of a grain of sand on the tip of your finger. What they saw was 3,000 galaxies never seen each one containing billions of stars. Each galaxy has got billions of stars and they uncover 3,000 in the one image. 2004, they decide to turn the Hubble south and they looked in the Southern hemisphere. They picked a dark spot because now they're going, ooh, I wonder what else is in every dark spot. September of 2003 through January of 2004, they would, they would put image upon image upon image of that one particular spot. And what they produced there is now called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And here's the image that came out of this Southern Hemisphere spot. 10,000 galaxies never seen, each one containing billions of stars. This last Christmas, uh, they launched what is called the Webb Telescope. You can tell I've been watching a lot of Nova recently, <laughs> but that stuff just blows my mind, you know? But the Webb Telescope has been in works for, gosh, decades, y'all, billions and billions of dollars. And this, is the mo the, this is the most powerful telescope known to humankind. It's further out in space and can look further into space. They launched it in Christmas Day of 2021. This last March of 2022, they, they, they looked into deep space with this most powerful telescope, and it brought us this image I'll show you called Webb's Deep Field. Again, it's just like the clarity that explodes. Again, ten, tens of thousands of galaxies in a spot in the sky that is the size of a grain of sand at the end of your finger, each galaxy containing billions of stars. I mean, that's real. This is real. And with that, we're ready to put our attention not on the sky, but on John's first words that tell us just what we're seeing. 
John 1, 1 to 5, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Why does John start like that? It's not like the other gospel accounts, the synoptics, the similar, the, the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, the genealogy, the birth, the, the birth story, or Mark just starts with his ministry, but oh my word, John, where are you? What a way to start an account of the life of, of a man, the God-man Jesus. Why does he start? first things that we remember. And he says nothing less than this. He wants us to know the most important thing about Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And I know I'm speaking whether online or in the room kind of mostly to the choir. I think everyone's just gone, okay, Lloyd, now what? And I want to say, stop. Jesus is God. I don't think our familiarity has bred contempt, as the phrase goes. I think it maybe, perhaps, has bred complacency. How else do we kind of unpack the fact that you, I think many in the room, you would look at me and go, Lloyd, I know that. We know that. We talk about that all the time. Jesus is God. I go, yeah, means, that means God lives in you and it lives in me. He lives in all who say they believe in Jesus. How is that? How can that be true? And in light of even what he's saying about God here, and there be so little God-likeness, quite frankly, around us. And I'm not, I'm not talking about out there. I'm just saying even, even amongst us. John's telling us that the deity of Jesus, by the way, that word deity just means divineness, so when we say the deity of Jesus, theologians are saying, you know, that Jesus is God, that he's deity. John is saying that the deity of Jesus is the starting point to following him. We can't go past this. We gotta start right there that Jesus is God. And so he gives these five verses to substantiate the, the claim that he makes. His very first words, can, can you not feel those? I, I, I think we, we probably do. In the beginning. Wait, wait, wait. Those are the exact words of how the whole Bible begins. Literal words. In the beginning. <laughs> And so for the Jew who heard that, you gotta understand their, their mind would immediately, you know, this is a story about Jesus, but it begins with a story about God. He's reframed the inaugural sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John has come along to say, in the beginning, Jesus 
How do we know Jesus? Look at verse 14. Let's just grab that because he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. The he of verse two, the word of verse one is Jesus. Any Jew would, their mind would be exploding just with the first sentence. He inserts Jesus where Genesis has God and he's done no damage to the text. In fact, he's just opened the text up to help us see what Genesis has always said and all of scripture has always said. It was through Jesus that all things were made. Now we're into the mystery of the Trinity. We'll unpack that. I mean, we're gonna be in this for a year that our Bible teaches that our God is Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct in person, one in essence, Father's God, Son's God, Holy Spirit's God, distinct in their personhood. He gives us three statements to, 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 to hold up. Jesus is God, let me touch them. With you. Verses one and two, Jesus is eternal and equal with God. Jesus is eternal, it'll be on the screen. Jesus is eternal and equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. There's a second time he says in the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. Four times John uses the preposition was, all four times it's the imperfect tense. There's a number of ways we could come at this, and I'm just picking this one. But the was there does not mean it, it was in the past. It means it's in the imperfect tense, which means this, has always been, will always be. It's continuous and ongoing. So John says, at the beginning of creation, he goes all the way to the garden and then goes further. He's not even at the, he's not even at the garden of Eden. He's in eternity past to say, in this place, when there was nothing, there was Jesus who has been and always will be. No beginning, no end. He's talking about the preexistence of the man we're gonna study, the God-man Jesus. The eternality of Jesus. And then he says, the word was with God if it's with God, it carries at least these two ideas. With means you can't be with something and be the thing itself. So there's boom, now we're distinct. There's Jesus and there's God the Father. The word also carries the sense of face to face. It's a relational word. You get that with, face to face. And so it's speaking here of the intimacy of Jesus with the Father always has been, is, and always will be toward one another, for one another. Then to, it's like to beat a dead horse, isn't it? Because you read the sentence, you go, I get it, I get it, I get it. Well, maybe we don't get it. Because he ends that first sentence to say, and let me, can I say this? The word was God, just in case you're confused. And unfortunately, many people confuse this. If you have a, a friend that's a Jehovah's Witness or a Jehovah's Witness background, Jehovah's Witnesses take that verse and way they, the way they interpret that verse is, you know, this verse in the Greek really says the word was a God. 
grammatically. And may I say, without spending too much time on it, in fact, very little, there is no credible Greek grammar that would say that the Greek here is the word was a God. That's not what it says. And, and to lay over that, the analogy of faith, which is a biblical principle that says, when you study your Bible, you've gotta make sure that if it says it here, then it's gotta be consistently said throughout, that it all fits together, it complements one another. And the Holy Scripture says Jesus is God. <clears throat> if you understand Jesus is God, flip it. Flip it for a minute and let that kind of stir in your head. It'll make you feel kind of funny. Oh, wait, God is Jesus. We don't say that a lot, but it's true. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. Think about how oftentimes you might hear a comment like, oh, the God of the Old Testament, I don't, I don't like him, but I love the, the God of the New Testament or the Jesus of the New Testament. That, that's an illogical statement. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. That means the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. Uh, the Jesus of the New Testament is God. <laughs> Let me say a brief word of why John uses this phrase, the word, because <laughs> repetition matters, doesn't it? The, in the beginning it was the word, and the word was, and the word was God, and the word became, why does he keep saying the word, the word, the word? Well, think about two audiences he speaks to. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, and in the first three words, he has captured the Jewish mind in the beginning. What? That's God. Yes, Jesus is God. But what about the Greek mind? Well, the Greeks for hundreds of years had observed the universe and, 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 and the planet and the, 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 all the physics of life. And they noted, why does the sun rise so consistently and set? Why does it make the same path? Why do the seasons change? Why does the tide come in? And, and they understood, as thinkers would, that there's, there's some unity to why things work the way they do. And so they formulated philosophically, there's gotta be a unifying principle that makes the clock work or makes everything tick and work as it does. And wouldn't you know it, they called that the logos, the word. And so in the beginning, Jewish mind, the logos, this thing you've been thinking about, this principle, this will that's out there that keeps everything working, the logos, the Greek mind, it's God. He's Jesus, he's Jesus. Jesus is eternal and equal with God. Secondly, verse three, Jesus is creator and sustainer of all things. Creator and sustainer of all things. All things were made through him. It's like that would be enough. Because all, all means all. But then, he, but then he has this statement, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he goes on the negative side just to cover that. Why? Well, we think he did that because one of the things that the, the, the Greeks believed was that all things, okay, before there were, there was things like we, we know them now, there, was, there were bad things and there were good things. And then God took the bad things and the good things and kind of messed meshed them together and he made the world with the bad things and the good things. And, and, and John rules that out. So he says, 
There was, there was no thing, so there was nothing. We're all the way back here pre-garden. There was nothing, ex nihilo, we say it, out of nothing God created. There was nothing, and then God created. Does that make sense? So he's kind of taking off the table the idea that there was this stuff that existed and this stuff that existed, and, and God worked them out. No, no, no. God spoke all things into creation. Excuse me. If Jesus did not make it, it does not exist. If Jesus made it, he's over it. Look at the look at the web. This is the web deep field, which I love it for its clarity. Over 10,000 galaxies in a piece of the sky that is the size of a grain of sand at the tip of your finger. Each galaxy, 100 billion stars. <laughs> What's in the dark spots in that picture, if you could see far enough? Before that was, Jesus was and had always been. And Jesus, through Jesus, that stuff is there. Honestly, more than our minds can hold. So when we get into John, and Jesus, the man, says to a storm on the Sea of Galilee that the sailors thought would kill them, shh, we all ought to go, of course. <laughs> He's the God who, right? It's like, of course. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, you'll remember this from our study, for by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Y'all, when this Jesus says to you and to me, follow me, what are you gonna say to him? We gotta keep in mind who's inviting us to follow. Jesus is eternal and equal with God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And third, John says, he's the source of life and light. Verses four and five, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He's the origin and source of life, you all. Why, why are you and I alive today, Jesus? No other explanation. Where does life come from? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is gonna, talking about speaking to the storm, right? We're gonna read a story too where he speaks to a man, a dead man. And the dead man becomes a live man. I mean, you, we're gonna get there and you got, we're gonna, I'll just tell you now, you know, this is not a man who, who just had a heart attack and 
he's been out for a few minutes and let's get on him, compressions, you know, or give me some lightning and hit him with it. You know, this is not that man. This is a man who's been dead three days and stinks because he's decomposing. Jesus, Jesus just says live and he lives. He's a source of life and light. By the way, we'll follow these themes all the way through John. Light is life, darkness is death. That's, how the, that's gonna just flow all the way through our study. It says the darkness cannot overpower, overcome, it's overpower, overcome. In other words, darkness, darkness is sin, all that is non-God, all that is apart from God, all that is contrary to God, the, 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 the dark, that darkness cannot overpower the light that is Jesus. Present tense, the light shines, shining, is shining, will always shine, is shining now, and the darkness cannot overcome it. John's telling us that the reality that Jesus is, the etern- is eternal and equal with God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the only source of life and light for humanity is the truest thing in the universe. And that'll always be true regardless of humanity's response to that truth. It cannot, darkness cannot extinguish it. And there's no darkness greater than the darkness of death. Not just the the separation of soul from body, which we're all gonna experience, we're all gonna die. But death as in your soul being separated from your God forever, that's eternal death. There's no greater darkness than that death. But that can't stop the reality of Jesus. Jesus is God's only son who came to die on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again, having satisfied the payment for sin. And all who believe in him, there's that word, believe in him, live. Darkness can't stop that. I want you to pause for a moment. And I'm gonna put two questions on the screen. Now, if you're a guest online or in the room, or you've been around, not been around long, you know when, we're, when we open our Bibles and we study the Bible, we don't do it to just learn about, wow, you know, this neat picture, the grain of sand, there's so much out there, that's fascinating. No, no, no. We study the word to be transformed by the word, to be changed by the word, that our belief would show itself in behavior. So we stop, I'm gonna give you a chance to think about this beyond think but what God's requiring of you in light of this. This is from these questions we have on our bookmark, you know, that you have here that we hope you reflect on all the way through. Two questions. Um, what is the text telling you about the nature of Jesus and what does this require of me? So I'm gonna give you the time, enough time for you to read those five verses three times. I'm gonna give you enough time just to kind of slowly read it and invite the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher, Open your eyes, eyes of your heart to say, what is this telling me about the nature of Jesus, who who I'm following? And what does this require of me? Take a moment now, please. Read Read the verses three times. Answer the questions between you and God.
me invite you to take the bread and the cup for the Lord's table. If you didn't get it, if you're a guest, you know, and didn't know we do this, but we come to the table every week. If you've placed your faith in Christ, then yes, come to the table. If you've not placed your faith in Christ, then join us at the table, but you wouldn't participate because you've yet to place your faith in these, what these elements represent, which is okay. If you need to grab one, go back and get one. Take the bread off the top and go ahead and get the cup opened. Hold that, hold each in your hand, please. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Oh God, we stand today, those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus, uh, we, not of our own doing, but by your grace, we actually affirm that word. Darkness has not overcome the light because your light shone in our hearts and we believe. And so we come to this table and take the bread and the cup, symbolic of the body of Christ, his his blood poured out, these very tangible, physical reminders of what is true. Jesus gave his body in our place on that cross, and we remember that. And it's as we receive it in the, the cup, it's, we're, we're believing it. It's going in us. We're depending upon him and his work. So Jesus, thank you for your body given on our behalf. Receive the bread. Life is in the blood. Jesus, you poured your blood out. You poured your life out. You gave your life. paid the penalty we deserved. Your blood was unstained by sin. It's not the blood of animals, bulls and goats, but the blood of the precious Son of God. And Father, we believe your penalty against sin, our sin, it was paid in full because Jesus didn't remain in the grave. He rose having no sin of his own. We remember that historically right now, and we say thank you. And in receiving the cup, we also are proclaiming to ourselves, Jesus, you'll come back one day, set all things right forever, receive the cup. Let's stand together. Worship is revelation and response. God reveals himself. We respond to that which he revealed to us. What better way than for us to respond to this word with a song, need a medley of songs that remind us of this light that came into this world. Beyond that, came into this life when one believes. Let's declare his great worth this morning.